Well, welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock, lead pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario. We talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and we're going to tackle the question of how the church can prove its essential nature by speaking out against the injustices of the lockdowns. So Aaron, today I wanted to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about why you're so opposed to lockdowns. Yeah, well, thanks, Chris. Uh, first of all, I'm looking forward to this new podcast. I know uh, I've been a little resistant to, to have a podcast like this for quite a while, but a few people have kind of been pestering me about it. And um, I, I, I believe that uh, this is an effective way for us to get a meaningful message out. You know, I've been a pastor for a long, long time. And I want to do my best to invest in other leaders and just to help to speak, you know, truth and perspective and wisdom into their lives as it pertains to, you know, everything from theology to apologetics, ethics, and the nature of leadership in the church, all with a view to helping people to lead better. So you've asked a question about lockdowns. So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of reasons why I oppose lockdowns um, from the perspective of uh you know, a pastor, I would say right now, one of the fundamental concerns I have relates to the matter of justice. So we could do a podcast on the charter rights being violated, and many people are talking about that, and it's true. Charter rights are being violated. Some police officers have violated the criminal code by entering churches and shutting them down. But I really want to focus today on the issue of justice. Uh, the, these lockdowns are essentially an experimental way to try to reduce the spread of COVID-19 mm -hmm. in our province. And uh, from the perspective of a medical practitioner, uh, there might be some sense to that. You know, if a medical practitioner's job essentially is to mitigate against unwanted death and dispersion of a disease, uh, you can understand how um, a person would say, oh, let's, let's just lock everybody down, right? That's a simple response. There's a virus out there. Let's just lock everybody down. And then we'll tagline that with uh, things like stay home, stay safe. But my concern is that uh, this is an extremely reductionistic, simplistic approach to viral spread. As a result of locking people down, uh, and we've been talking about this as pastors for a long time, but now it's starting to come out in the media, which is good. We're seeing things like a rapid increase in drug overdoses. We're seeing an increase in alcoholism. Sadly, very sadly, we're seeing children mm -hmm. being admitted. Like we're talking babies, mm -hmm. newborns right through to one-year-old being admitted in numbers never before seen into hospitals because their stressed out parents are at home. You know, they, 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 they can't handle it. They have no support systems. Uh, the Ottawa paper there reported last week that last year at this time, they had eight infants that came in with broken bones or various um, injuries sustained from their parents. This year it was up to 20 
That's over a hundred percent increase. We have uh, small business owners that have been closed and are literally losing their shirts. I was talking to a man yesterday in our area and he has an entertainment uh, business and he literally has not had a paycheck since last March. Wow. His wife still works. So they have some income, but he has no income coming in. And, um, at the same time, while I'm not opposed to you know, corporate business ventures, at the same time, I think every thinking person would acknowledge that there, there's an injustice to allowing big box stores, the corporate giants, who have the lobbyists that can push the government around, to remain open and have hundreds of people in, but literally tens of thousands Think about that for a minute. Tens of thousands of small businesses are going broke. These are people that have remortgaged their houses, invested their life savings, spent countless hours starting their businesses and marketing them and advertising them. And they're just closed. And what I've said to people is, as we think about this matter of extending life, there is no life without livelihood. We live in a physical world. You just can't lock people down and rob them of income, rob them of hope and despair and all this kind of stuff and expect them to survive. And then we have, in addition to all that, uh, the increase in despair. I mean, I think all of us are probably struggling. I'm not sure how you're feeling. To but some degree or another, yeah. Sort of a little, like a, a almost like a, um, a, a low-level depression. Yep. You know, like they talk about having a, kind of a low level fever. Mm -hmm. You can kind of just feel it. It's not a big deal, but this kind of a low level fever. I think a lot of people I'm talking to have sort of a low level depression. And for those that are normally um, strong minded, maybe have family in the home, that's probably not going to rock their boat as much. You know, we're going to push through it. But there is a lot of people out there that are very vulnerable. They're mentally vulnerable. They're socially and relationally vulnerable. And all of these things should break our hearts. Mm -hmm. Just to, to tack on to that, what would you say to some of the, you know, maybe people critiques that would say that's always been the case. You know, there's always been some of these injustices. There's always been some of that stuff. Uh, why are you only talking about it now? Yeah. Good point. Well, we tend to talk about crises and crises, you know, and um, right now it's not just sort of run of the mill stuff going on. It's it's spikes in every level, spikes in suicide, spikes in opioid addiction, spikes in um, businesses closing and spikes in you know, all, all of these uh, side effects, we could call it the collateral damage of lockdowns. It's just becoming almost unmanageable mm -hmm. um, psychiatric uh, hospitalizations. We've had a couple people associated with our churches, our, our church that have had to check themselves into the psychiatric hospital. They just, they, they can't handle the isolation of a loneliness. So we're talking about it now. You know, we've always been a church. I'll just make this comment. Um, depending on where you're located in a given city, depending on the kind of people that tend to come to your church, you know, your ministry is going to have different ways of expressing itself. So if you are in an area where 
maybe 50, 60% of the people that come to your church struggle with drug addiction, you're probably going to have, you know, a front page ministry helping people to work through addictions. We don't. We're a suburban church. You know, we're, we're primarily reaching the middle class. Um, you know, we're primarily reaching the kind of people that Jesus called into his circle as his primary disciples. Jesus ministered to the rich. You know, he had Matthew, the tax collector, in his circle. Jesus ministered to and with the middle class. You know, Peter, Andrew, John, the fishermen, you know, the, the blue-collar workers. Jesus reached out to the disadvantaged. He reached out to widows and orphans and lepers and so forth. So Jesus' ministry wasn't just uh, contrary to modern stereotypes strictly to the poor. He ministered to a broad variety of people. And with the um, you know, advent of neighborhoodization of our cities, we tend to have people in different economic and social um, economic classes in our city. We happen to be in the suburbs. We don't apologize for that. God loves people in the suburbs too, I think. And so our ministry is largely to uh, young families, middle-aged folks, university students, and the like. So we don't have, uh, you know, a front-page ministry to, to addicts. We don't run a soup kitchen. But in our church, you know, we are regularly, and I would even use the word robustly, counseling and discipling, discipling people on a whole variety of issues, people with pornographic addictions, people who are uh, struggling in their marriages, people that are trying to discipline kids that are wayward. Um, we, we do deal with people that are um, single parents, and uh, we have some immigrants in our church that are you know, trying to get on their own two feet economically and you know, learn the language more fluently and on and on and on. You know, we don't go around necessarily broadcasting and you know, presenting an annual report of the lives we've impacted, but I've been doing this for you know 20 years in this church. And there are countless lives that have been impacted through the ministry of our church. So it's it's interesting how we're seeing, even in our own church, people who, you know, are otherwise someone might look at them from a distance and say, oh, that person's pretty normal. They're pretty well balanced. You know, they seem to have it all together. And the wheels are falling off the cart. Yeah, that's uh, that's well said. I think that makes a, a lot of sense. Would it be fair to say then as well that one of the, the reasons to raise the alarm in some ways is because the natural means of our ministry have been shut down due to lockdowns? I think all of us understand that life change primarily takes place through relationships. I heard this many years ago. I don't remember the source, so I, I almost feel like it's mine. You know, if you say the same thing over and over again, it kind of becomes yours. But someone wrote or said or preached, uh, Christianity is an imitative faith. So as I think back on my own spiritual journey, so much of what I've learned and absorbed, so much of my thinking has been shaped by relationships, by standing in a church foyer and being confronted about something, by being in a small group by sitting in a service and listening to the people of God worship and then hearing the preacher preach and getting into small groups for prayer or conversations in the office or, you know, those hard phone calls we sometimes have to make or, you know, whatever it might be. It's, we are forged in the context of relationships. Now we can be impacted from a distance by 
online sermons, online worship, turning on the radio, whatever it might be. But we are incarnational beings. Our Lord Jesus didn't send us a podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he didn't send us a you know, Zoom sermon. He stepped into a dangerous world mm-hmm. and subjected himself to much danger incarnationally, uh, even to the point of the cross, which is part of the Christian gospel account. Um, he, he lived among us. The, the, the Lord came and lived among us. He is Emmanuel. And properly understood, Christian ministry is Emmanuel. It's God with us, and it's us living together with God in community, in robust community, in relationship, strengthening each other. And part of that is through instruction and worship. Okay, but it's much, much more than that. It's through biblical discipline. It's through accountability. It's through living out your faith publicly. You know, we all know we tend to slip into sin when we know we're uh, uh, not being watched, not being accountable, you know, not being called out. You know, by ourselves, we can get kind of wicked. And, but in the context of church community, people are strengthened in their faith. They experience the one and others of the faith. So I'm, I'm primarily concerned about these issues because we're living in an unprecedented time in history where literally the whole church, regardless of city or circumstance, regardless of size of building, regardless of the kind of demographic that you're reaching, is shut down. And we are essentially limited to sort of an entertainment or a spectator kind of church, an observational church rather than an incarnational church. An observational Christianity never really leads to the kind of growth we want to see in our people. Incarnational ministry does. Mm-hmm. Well said. If we can circle back to the the idea of justice, the word justice is used a, a, a lot these days. Yeah. But the idea of biblical justice, can you talk a bit about what biblical justice looks like and how it relates to lockdowns? Yeah, so obviously in the Old Testament, this is where our foundation of biblical justice starts. Uh, we have the prophets calling the people of God out for what? For being unjust. And how, there's, there's many ways to be unjust, but the primary expression that concerned the prophets was when people who consider themselves followers of God overlooked the classes of people that were most susceptible to disease, starvation, abandonment, this kind of thing. So the primary categories under the old covenant were widows, women who, and culture is different now because there's obviously room in pretty much every vocation for men and women to find gainful employment. But under the old covenant, the man was uh, the primary breadwinner. Women were in a more vulnerable situation, even than they are now. So taking care of the widow, uh, taking care of the orphan, the fatherless, we, we understand that um, people die every year in our country from various things. But, you know, back in those days, in every spring, what are we doing? We're going to war. A lot of men don't come back. So we have orphans, widows. We have the alien, sort of the equivalent of the modern refugee that uh, is living among us and can be subject to discrimination and inequality. 
So the Old Testament prophets were constantly ranting on the people of God, like, you have to not only provide, but you can't create structures and systems that permit the widow, the orphan, the refugee to be overlooked. And then Jesus just kind of carries that forward. And he adds to that the blind, the lame, um, those that, uh, you know, had been cast aside or ridiculed. Um, so we have lots of teaching from Jesus calling the church to concern itself with not permitting the state or the people of God to overlook matters of justice. Now, guess what? Fortunately, and we often don't give the historic church enough credit for this. We tend to complain more about what, what the church isn't doing. You know, the church isn't doing enough. The church isn't doing enough. The church isn't doing that. We hear we have a lot of social justice warriors online, many of whom claim to be Christians. They're just, they're always, they always seem to be uh, angry at the church. The church isn't doing enough. The church isn't doing enough. Well, as a result of a faithful church, church hasn't always been faithful, but the church has enjoyed a lot of faithful ministry. Uh, the, the Christian church over the centuries have contributed to things like hospitals. Let's, let's bring sick people into buildings, monasteries, wherever it might have been in the first the early days, and tend to their physical injuries or ailments. Those developed into hospitals. Education. Educational institutions, um, many of the universities of our country and our neighbors to the south come from Christian seminaries, Christian institutions of learning. The church, as we understand it in the Western world, previously known as Christendom, in other words, nations that were sort of birthed out of the cradle of Christianity and carry the values and virtues of biblical Christianity into the world. Um, the church is really the first free institution in the Western world. Uh, Christians have been at the forefront of starting hospitals, educational institutions, um, feeding the poor, starting soup kitchens, which often have merged into more social service agencies, freedom, uh, Christian soldiers, soldiers from Christian countries have gone to war to fight against either aberrant forms of Christianity or um, various forms of, of, of abuse. Um, you know, many of the countries today in the world that hold democracy in highest regard are historically Christian nations, if not all of them. So we're not patting ourselves on the back, but we can just say historically the church has been very, very concerned about justice we are and always will be, whether we're ministering in downtown churches or trying to figure out how to respond to matters of justice in the suburbs or whatever it might be. The church should always be concerned about matters of justice. Yeah. So you've stated that you think pro-lockdown churches are proving that they aren't essential by staying closed, many of which may even argue that they should be closed. So why do you think it's a mistake for churches to stay closed and to stay silent about it? Well, for those of you that might be listening from other churches, I'll just say I, I acknowledge that some churches are in circumstances whereby they want to be open, but for various reasons can't be. So, for example, uh, there may be a pastor or a collection of primary leaders in a church that they, they want to be open, but maybe they have a governance structure or a decision-making structure built into the DNA of their church that just makes it incredibly frustrating. 
to reopen their churches. So I want to acknowledge that. I think we have to be careful, you know, not just every church that closes cowardly and every church that closes timid and they're sinning. That's not my perspective at all. I think there's some churches that are led by great people that want to be open, but for whatever reason can't be. But there seems to be a, a pretty pretty hefty number of churches that are either just silent on this issue, silent, and silence communicates something, by the way, silent on this issue, or, you know, they're, they're writing articles, they're, they're, di- they're talking to the media, they, they're uh, preaching to their people, we should be closed, we should be closed, we should love our neighbor, love our neighbor, love our neighbor, love our neighbor, as if this is the just thing to do. And, you know, of course, if, if, if there's a virus going around, you don't go around sneezing in people's faces. You know, there's, there's, a, there's some basic responsibilities not to get other people sick as best as you can. I mean, I, I, before this all started, if, if, if I saw a family, you know, come in the front door of our church and they're coughing and hacking and sneezing, you know, one of them says, oh, we just threw up this morning. I mean, you're, even under normal circumstances, you'd say, what in the world are you doing in church today? Like, I don't want to get the stomach right. flu, yeah. right? So we all, we all take basic precautions. Uh, we can't totally insulate ourselves from uh, death or disease. But um, pro-lockdown churches are, that's what I would call those that seem to be not only okay with, but all, almost like promoting this narrative. And generally speaking, there's an argument that's made that this is, the Christian response based on Romans 13, which is now the most, you know, it's the most popular verse of the year, right? Nobody's talking about John 3.16 anymore. It's Romans 13. Um, that we got to obey the authorities. We got to obey the authorities. And I could talk about that at length. I completely disagree with that interpretation and that application of the text. I'll but, save that for another podcast. Yeah, <laughs> so that'll be a good one. Although it might be, um, it might be sort of, um, a little redundant because we've talked about it so much. It's true. But um, back to kind of your, your question. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the second argument, it, it generally revolves around something like we should be closed because it's a loving thing to do. Right. We don't want to kill people. And I, I think that that sounds good for a hashtag, you know, a little soundbite. I think it's incredibly reductionistic and simplistic. Just incredibly reductionistic and simplistic. Um, there are so many other ways that lockdowns are destroying people's lives. And we have like a convergence of problems upon us, right? So if, if for example, uh, everyone who was listening to this podcast literally had to go out today and earn their daily bread with their own hands, with no guarantee that they would have anything tomorrow and with nothing left over from yesterday, almost like a Israel in the wilderness, the daily manna kind of thing going on. Nobody would be locked down. Nobody would be like, this is a, they'd say, look, there's an urgent need for me to go and earn my daily bread. Um, We live in different times where a large portion of the population has what we would call guaranteed income. They have money in the bank, they're employed by the government, you know, they're teachers or nurses. They might even be working in an, an industry that is uh, benefiting from the lockdown, you know, mm-hmm. selling PPE or uh, this offensive term considered an essential service, which I think is very demeaning, by the way. And it's probably going to come out in the history books. But 
Um, some people are benefiting from this, but what they're what what a lot of these vocal people are doing, even pastors that are salaried from their churches, they're not they're not making any less than they did last year. They, they don't have to pray for their daily bread. They got their bread lined up for the next several months. But what we often forget is that a large portion of the population doesn't know where their bread is going to come from tomorrow. And a large portion of people, people who who are small business owners, their only income is, you know, they sell pizza or, you know, they provide entertainment venues for people or they cater for weddings uh, or they run a health and fitness center on and on and on. They have bills. They still have to pay the electric bill, the gas bill, the mortgage or the rent. Their income is zero. And I think it's, frankly, I think it's disgusting that people with secure incomes are looking at these people and saying, you better close your business down. You better love your neighbor. You better keep your door. How dare you defy the lockdown? You know, throw the book at them, increase the fines. This is disgusting. Frankly, I think it's probably one of the greatest manifestations of modern day selfishness. People just seem obtuse or they just don't care about the needs of others. Now, by the way, um, I'm saying this from the perspective of a guy that, you know, more or less is financially secure. The church is very fair to me in terms of my wage. I've been working for 30 years. I have equity. I could just say, oh, I'm taking a little sabbatical. I'm going to close the church down. I'm going to hang out of my house, you know, catch up on my honey-do list, maybe do a little vacationing here and there, some day trips, whatever it might be. So I'm not, I'm not voicing my concern about these things because I personally am suffering financially. Um, but many, many people are. And frankly, the silence of so many churches on this is sinful. I'm just going to name it. It's sinful. It's selfish. They're following the cultural narrative. They're not concerning themselves with the plight of the poor and the disadvantaged. They're not concerning themselves with the plight of the widow and the you know, proverbial orphan, the refugee. They're just, they've bought into the social narrative that everyone's going to die. By the way, now we know that everyone's not going to die. We didn't know what was going on last March. A very small fraction of 1% of people who get the virus will die from it. And they'll die in and around an age that they would normally die in Canada, you know, in and around the age of 81 or so. This is kind of like the, the average. We know this. Every once in a while, there's going to be a blip. And a 95-year-old is going to get it and survive it. And a 25-year-old is going to get it and die from it. These are blips. These are minute exceptions to the rule. Every life being precious, of course, we acknowledge that. Can't be a ministry if you don't acknowledge that. But these are radical exceptions to the rule. So I think that there's uh, going to be a, a heavy accounting, a serious accounting, I should say, for Christian leaders and pastors and churches that are hunkered down and just sort of doing their thing on Zoom pumping out sermons online and live streaming stuff and advocating for the lockdown 
and pretending uh, that they, they're loving their neighbors or maybe even believing they're loving their neighbors, but under this reductionistic mindset that it's just all about saving people from the virus. And they're literally destroying, contributing to the, the destruction of our province and country. Yeah. What would you say to a, let's say there's a pastor or a leader of a church uh, listening in and they're just overwhelmed right now. They've been overwhelmed with the needs of their people and the limitations that they're facing and being able to, to meet those needs. They aren't uh, able to see all the stats and everything else that's going on. They're maybe just, they feel like they don't even know what the next step is. What's a, what's the next step that they could take? Well, you know, we're all wired differently and uh, some pastors are, I mean, there's basic qualifications for pastoral leadership. If, if you're just like a deer in the headlights, I'm sorry, sir, but you're not a leader. You shouldn't be leading a church. If you have nothing to offer and nothing to say and no insight into what's going on, seminary degree or not, you shouldn't be leading a church. So there, there are, it, it sounds harsh for me to say that and maybe judgmental, but truth is truth. And some people that think they're leaders clearly are not leaders. But at the same time, uh, within pastoral circles, there's people with different strengths and weaknesses. There's some that are just, you know, they're uh, wonderful evangelists. Others are wonderful counselors or shepherds and some kind of uh, maybe spike in terms of their strength in the area of teaching or administration or leadership. So we all sort of have different roles to play. And as I assess my own ministry over the years, as much as I'd like to sort of be a general practitioner, I recognize that in some areas I excel and in other areas I have weaknesses. So I surround myself with a team and, uh, you know, we have 10 or 12 elders in our church and 15 or 16 staff people and lots of other leaders that give input. Uh, so you surround yourself with, with different people. I would just say if you're sort of um, in a situation where you're, you you fear, feel a bit like a deer in the headlights, get behind men that know how to speak publicly, that know how to analyze the culture, that know how to interact with government, that know how to do these things. And there might be a time when you know this all blows over and other issues arise and men that are competent in that area have to get behind you. But silence is communicating something to your people. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. It, it would be hard for us to know exactly what was going on in ancient Israel. I'm sure there were some mean people and bullies out there that would laugh and taunt the widows and the orphans. But a, a greater problem, I think, was just silence. They just didn't, they're just kind of living their lives and they just didn't bother investing. So it, you don't have to be, uh, you know, highly versed or highly competent in all the areas pertaining to managing COVID lockdowns, this is new for all of us, to, you know, repost an article, to uh, call your people to pray deliberately about this, to at least express your uh, preference that the church would be open. And another thing I would say is one of the challenges I've had as a guy that's been pretty vocal about all of this is, you know, I have the world to deal with, you know, the typical church bashers and haters that are always ready to pounce as soon as you make a statement. But there, there then are leaders, like leaders of movements in Canada that are publicly, you know, calling uh, pastors, the actions of pastors like myself or my colleagues, oh, you're embarrassing 
You know, your actions are embarrassing. They're shameful. Um, you know, they're, they're cluttering up their blogs or their Facebook feeds with disparaging comments or um, articles that you know, are just all lopsided and just you know, present the pro-lockdown view, which essentially is just a Christianized view of what the government is saying. It's not even, you're, not even, you're not even really contributing to the discussion. You might as well just repost what the premier is posting. You might as well just repost what CBC is posting. You're, you're not even advancing the discussion. The, the, the discussion. To, to people like that, I would say, I hate to be harsh, but like, sit down and shut up. Stop damaging the efforts of those of us that will ultimately benefit you. We will ultimately benefit you. I mean, the quicker we can get your church open or at least give you the opportunity to open, why, how is that a bad thing? Your people are suffering. Some of them are leaving your churches because of your silence or your opposition. So if you're not kind of into reopening the churches, like just sit back and be silent. You have... Uh, you know, you have a lot more to lose when you're opposing those that are seeking to stand for justice and righteousness, as well as legal rights and these sorts of things, than you know, than than by opposing us. Mm-hmm. That absolutely makes sense. With the people that are perhaps in those churches and maybe are struggling under leaders that are speaking otherwise, what what advice would you give to them? Like, well, yeah, that's that's a hard one. You know, I. I've, I've never been a, a church salesman. And what I mean by that is I, I just, I've really worked hard over the years not to, to do things to like deliberately lure people from other churches or push people, um, you know, away. Obviously, you know, it wouldn't even go as a surprise to my listeners to say some people have accused me of that, right? I mean, I've, I can think of times we've had people come to our church. I don't even know who they are. I don't know what church they come from. When you find out through the grapevine that the church they came from is mad because they think we lured them here. I don't even know who these people are. You know, I get to know them after the fact. So there's those rumors, but I have many flaws. One thing I don't, I don't do, I don't lie. And um, I don't lure people from other churches. So I, I'm, I'm a little, I want to be sensitive to how I respond to that question because I, I, I'm not interested in, in being destructive uh, you know, and other churches are disrespecting other churches. But I think that there's a lot of Christian pastors out there that frankly have tragically failed their people. And God will hold them to account for royally mismanaging uh, this situation. Uh, they are essentially saying to the world, and they're putting a neon sign out front, you're right, we are not essential. We are not essential. We're not essential. We're going to bow to the technocrats, the physicians. We're going to wait for a reporter to call out, you know, the the uh, increase in suicides, opioids. We're just completely irrelevant is what many churches are signaling to the world. They're trying to signal that they're, they have a faithful testimony and they're relevant and all that kind of stuff. And we love the world. Uh, the world would rather have you shut. They don't care about you. And if you just sort of back down and lock down and fail to minister to your people, you're signaling to the world that you are not essential. So if you're attending a church that's doing that or participating in that crime against the church, 
I would say your first step, obviously, is to talk to your primary leaders, whoever they are, express your concerns. Um, surely by now they've probably heard from many more people than you. Express your concerns. But at some point, if your church isn't willing to be a faithful church, you probably have to move on. Now, I, 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 it'd probably be good for us to talk just briefly about what faithfulness is. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I, I yeah, think that that absolutely. would be, I, mean, I know you're not asking me the question, but <laughs> I'll ask you the question. What's a faithful church? <laughs> okay, well, thanks for the question, Chris. Um, so there's there's kind of two, two approaches that I've noticed to this. What does it mean to be a faithful church or a faithful witness? Okay. Faithful witness, right? So we have people that are, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to go to the church because, you know, it's, it's illegal right now, which it's not, but uh, because it's constitutionally protected right to attend church. But, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to go because I don't want to get fined. It's a bad testimony. It's a bad testimony. Aaron, you know, getting fined is a bad testimony. I'm trying to minister to my family member. It's a bad testimony for you to be open. And um, I've heard through the grapevine uh, that we've even had people leave our church because they're in favor of the church opening, but they think it's a bad testimony for me to try to open my church. And I would say to folks that have that notion of faithful witness, that you have a secularized notion of faithful witness. Being a faithful witness, nowhere in scripture, nowhere in scripture is defined as getting people to like you, getting people to agree with you, or like pre-evangelizing people. That's, that's, not, that's, not, that's not faithful witness. Now, we don't want to be a stumbling block to the weak believer. The Bible does talk about that in 1 Corinthians. We don't want to participate in unnecessary activities that might push someone away. But I think we have this notion, and, and as I've thought about it, I might even have been taught this growing up, that if I want to be a faithful witness, I want to make sure I live my life in such a way that I don't ever offend anybody, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a very dangerous definition of faithful witness, and that's a slippery slope because the world's always changing the, um, the rule book. Yep. You know, they're telling us, now, oh, you, you know, you can't practice uh, what they call conversion therapy, which is which is not that's not what that's about at all. Uh, it's, it's about something very different. We should probably hit that in another podcast. But um, you know, if you're going to be a faithful witness, stay home, stay safe. This is not this is not a biblical view of faithful witness. A faithful witness is very simply an obedient ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Period. Let mm -hmm. me say it again. They're an obedient ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. If God tells me to do A, I do A. If God tells me to do B, I do B. That's a faithful witness. Mm -hmm. It's being obedient. And the world is witnessed to by my faithfulness to my commanding officer, who is Christ. The world is not witnessed to when I say, well, I don't want to offend you, so I'm going to wait. I'm going to sort of wait a little while to preach the gospel to you. That's not faithful witness. It's not a faithful witness to say, well, you know, the health director might be mad at me, or I might get fined, or the police department might get mad at me, or mainstream media might write some snarly articles about me if I open my church, and I don't want to ruin my testimony. Mm -hmm. Hey, I bet you there's not a church in the province that have had people show up you know, let's say in between the two lockdowns and have said, you know what, man, my life's just been so impacted. I was just thinking about your faithful witness, how you just immediately closed your church down and kept your church closed. Wow. 
you know, up till now, I didn't see. Now I see up till now. I was walking in darkness. Now I'm walking in the light. Thank you for closing your church. Like, come on, people. Pro-closure churches are not going to have people lining up at the front door when, when we reopen saying, oh, I just felt so loved by you because you didn't minister to me for the last several months. And, you know, you obeyed the law and, you know, you... You called out those wicked churches that are trying to open those embarrassing churches. Sorry, that is not a biblical definition of faithful witness. And I, I think a lot of churches that have closed are are going to be quite surprised at how little fruit they ultimately bear from their decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now that brings up an interesting, maybe final point, because we, for the sake of time, can't keep going on forever. But um, as you mentioned, fruit from ministry, we think about, the, the reality we've experienced where uh, speaking up against the injustice of lockdowns, we have actually heard from unbelievers that have said they're grateful that the church is sticking out its neck to speak up against injustice. Um, and so we've seen some fruit there. At the end of the day, is fruitfulness a means or, and to an end? Like, do we take any means to an end? Or maybe can you speak to the, um, how do you say that, like the pra- pragmatics of it? Yeah. Um, comment on that? Yeah, one of the things I often say when I'm preaching is that the mission of God is the glory of God, which is sort of our vertical mindset, as we call it in our church. A horizontal approach to church is that we just just meet needs, meet needs, meet needs, minister to people. And we do all that. But the, the end goal is always God's glory. And we know God is glorified in good and bad situations. All things work together for the good. God uh, can get glory through Obedience, disobedience, and all that kind of thing. But the end game is uh, is God's glory. But God is given glory uh, as the church faithfully disciples, new converts, evangelizes the lost, meets the needs of the widow and the orphan, speaks out against injustice, speaks out against you know untruth, etc. So um, we are concerned about fruit, right? Like fruit is. Um, we want to be careful not to put too many business metrics on it, but um, we often would say like growing churches are not necessarily healthy churches, but healthy churches will be growing churches. They're either growing in depth or um, width, preferably both. Right, because every mm-hmm. soul counts. So we want to grow numerically. We don't apologize for that, and we want to grow in depth. We don't apologize mm-hmm. for that. So yeah, we, we do want to bear fruit, and um, we we bear fruit by being obedient, mm-hmm. either in the short term or the long term. So well, I, I think our churches. You kind of asked a question there about um, speaking out against injustice. I. I I'm not just concerned with getting the physical doors of our church open. I'm not, I'm not a simpleton. I'm not just, oh, just get the doors open. End of story. We're fighting a cultural war. The decisions we're making now are going to affect other government decisions down the road. Uh, we are galvanizing our people against current and future persecution. We're, we're uh, signaling to the small business owner that we actually love them and care enough for them to stand with them as their livelihoods are being taken away. We're also ministering to the sick. Um, you know, we're ministering to people. We're, we are and are more than willing to minister in the hospitals, even in the middle of a pandemic. I'll, I'll go. 
Um, let me in. Uh, we want to minister to people in the hospitals. Our church just had a, a little initiative where we were able to collect a whole bunch of um, personal items for the hospital. And uh, one of the girls in our church is taking that all over. And I think that'll be a blessing to some of the people that are there. We want to be able to do that. We want to be able to minister to people who are struggling with you know, what society calls. I think there's a better biblical term for it. Maybe that would be another good podcast mm-hmm. topic as well. But mental health. Yep. We can talk about mental health at some point biblical perspective or ministering to people with relationships or people that are new parents and are just struggling with the isolation of it all. So yeah, those are all ways of bearing fruit. Mm -hmm. Um, And here's what I know in the end, we're going to win. Okay. In the end, we're going to win. If not in this life in the next and the decisions that we're making, if someone were to ask me, Aaron, how sure are you that the need to reopen the churches is, you know, vital. I would say I'm 100% sure. There's not even a question in my mind. We have mm-hmm. to get our churches reopened, our ministry restarted. This is one of our primary ways of bearing fruit. Are we bearing some fruit now? Yeah. Yeah, we are. But in a different way and in a limited way. And we've had to turn some people away and on and on and on, right? Public ministry, the institutional church, is a huge blessing. And if it goes away, we're going to suffer from it. So, you know, it's fine to talk about going underground and just meeting in homes and stuff. We have to do that. We'll do that. And in some respects, we, we already are because we're a church of small groups. But the church institute, the public church in culture, in a location, with an address, running programs, running public ministry, equipping people, being a spiritual hospital, and then going out into the world to reach lost people is vital. And if this is not your heartbeat. You again are signaling to the world that you are not essential. And at the end of it all, you're, you're simply shooting yourself in the foot. I think you're robbing God of glory mm-hmm. and you're reducing the amount of fruit that you're going to ultimately bear. It's good. It's very good. This has been a great discussion on the leadership now podcast with Dr. Aaron rock. We're grateful you've joined us. And if you could like and subscribe to this podcast, that would be great. And as also, if you could spend some time sharing it on social media, that would help us out a ton. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.